Thanks to LinkedIn for supporting Motley Fool Answers. LinkedIn Jobs makes it easy to get matched with quality candidates who make the most sense for your role. Post a job today at linkedin.com slash fool and get $50 off your first job post. This is Motley Fool Answers. I'm Allison Southwick, and I'm joined, as always, by Robert Brokamp, personal finance expert here at The Motley Fool. Well, hello. In this week's episode... Morgan Housel from the Collaborative Fund is back. You love him. We love him. Let's hear him talk about different ways to be smart in life and investing. All that and more on this week's episode of Molly Full Answers. So, bro, what's up? Well, Allison, guess what? I got three things for you. <laughs> First one, and this is a headline straight from the Wall Street Journal, the long bull market has failed to fix public pensions. So, we know we've been in this great bull market for stocks. You'd think that all these underfunded pensions, particularly public pensions, meaning those offered by states, counties, and and, uh, cities, would be better off. Turns out that's not quite the case. So here's a quote from the article. Liabilities of major U.S. public pensions are up 64% since 2007, while assets are up only 30%. So why is that? Well, first of all, pensions are a mix of stocks and bonds. Stocks have done very well. Bonds have not. Bonds have underperformed their long-term average by about two percentage points over the last decade. Also, uh, back before the last 20 years or so, assets grew much faster than liabilities, which made states and cities and counties feel very generous, so they increased benefits. But then what happened? Then came the dot-com crash, the Great Recession, so things have changed. Also, nowadays there are more retirees, people who need the benefits, those have grown while the number of people paying into it, that is the employees, have stayed about flat. So they use the example of Maine. So they have had about the same number of employees since 2007, but the number of their retirees have grown 32%. Also, because of the economic difficulties of the last 15, 20 years or so, some states haven't been putting in the amount of money that they were recommended. So one example they gave was New Jersey, which from 2009 to 2012 only put in about 15% of what they were supposed to put in. And now they have only about a third of the assets they need to cover wow. future liabilities. Oof. Right. So some states have tried to change the benefits, but that got uh, shot down either in the courts or by protests. Maine, which has been doing a better job than many plans in terms of fixing things, were able, was able to change the formula for benefits, basically the cost of living adjustment, which is, by the way, unique to public pensions. Most private pensions do not adjust for inflation. Most public pensions do, which increases your costs. But even that only cut down their deficit by about $2 billion, and they're still $3 billion short of where they need to be. So it's a real problem for these governments and the taxpayers in these cities. Uh, earlier, Last month, Warren Buffett told CNBC in an interview that public pensions are, quote, a disaster. And he said, quote, if I were relocating into some state that had a huge unfunded pension plant, I'm walking into liabilities. I say to myself, why do I want to build a plant there that has to sit there for 30 or 40 years? Because I'll be here for the life of the pension plan, and they will come after corporations, they'll come after individuals, they're going to have to raise a lot of money, end quote. So basically, he's saying, if you see a state that is significantly underfunding their pension, don't go there, because the only way they're going to solve that is by raising taxes. So the bottom line here is, even if you're not a beneficiary of one of these pensions, but you live in one of these state, cities, or counties, you've got to know the situation. 
And you've got to factor that into your long-term plan because they have to make up that money. And where somehow. do you learn about the situation of your individual state? You you have to look at most state. Well, so it depends on the municipality you live in. It could be a city, it could be a county. But each of these has some sort of Department of Treasury or something like that. Every state's different, but somewhere you'll be able to find the funding status of the local pensions. And if you are planning to retire, when you're a teacher or a cop or a fireman, you were hoping to rely on these, you've got to know that status. Because if it's significantly underfunded, you have to count on the fact that you're not going to get all that you're promised. Number two. Number two. It is couples and the divvying up of financial chores. So, this comes from a recent study by professors Adrian Ward and John Lynch, and they looked at how couples decide who does the financial tasks and what are the future outcomes due to those decisions. So, first of all, the the evidence is clear that most couples divvy up the tasks. One person is what these guys called the family CFO. So, the CFO and the non-CFO. So, first of all, how do you decide that? Well, they actually found out that it, most couples don't decide based on financial literacy or financial skills. It's basically other factors like who has the time to do it. But over time, the financial literacy of the two people in the couple changes. So, the person who is the family CFO becomes smarter and smarter. And the person who's the non-CFO actually starts to lose financial intelligence to the point where the longer you've been together, it's a pretty significant gap. Uh, Now, as long as both partners are around, this is actually efficient. They use some very non-romantic language to discuss how members of a couple basically use each other as external hard drives, uh, which they call transactive memory systems. (laughs) So they said these systems, quote, involve both the individual memory systems of each partner, and the interpersonal transactive processes that coordinate the encoding, storage, retrieval, and use of information between partners. Aww, Baby. Schmoopy. Yeah, so put that on your Match.com profile and see how many dates you get. Uh, so, obviously, it's actually they looked at the outcomes of this and they said it makes a lot of sense, right? It falls apart when the CFO is no longer able to do the job, either temporarily or eternally. And that leaves the other person to try to figure out what to do. And what they found out is, not only do these people who have not scored very high on financial literacy, not only do they not know how to make the decisions, but they don't even know enough to know where to go to get the information. Um, and then, so, then they often turn to financial advisors, but it takes a certain amount of financial literacy to choose a good financial advisor and not get scammed. So obviously, the lesson here is, it's perfectly fine to divvy up the tasks, it's actually very efficient, but you've got to have a plan for what you're going to do when the family CFO can't do that job. And it's particularly important for women, according to the study, because they pointed out that uh, in 75% of the times when some member of the couple dies, it's the husband who dies. So most widows are women, and they're widowed for about nine years. So if they are not the family CFO, they're left in the lurch. This seems like a good time to once again plug the letter from a dead husband. Right, from from our our good friend Bob Hasmiller, who did pass away. But before he passed away, every year he updated a letter from your dead husband, which was a document that his wife could look at if something happened to him, so she would know exactly where everything was and who to turn to for help. And then finally, number three, a linebacker tackles financial illiteracy. Puns! Hey! So you may have heard the stat from the 2009 Sports Illustrated article that said that 78% of former former NFL players have gone bankrupt or under financial stress because of joblessness or divorce within two years of retirement. Oh, two years, wow. Yes. So, well, one player who hopes to avoid that fate is linebacker Brandon Cope. So, he grew up in a middle-class household in Baltimore. 
played high school football. Fortunately, his football coach was a hedge fund manager, so, <laughs> so he was able to work for the hedge fund while in high school. Goes to the University of Pennsylvania, does some work as a nighttime stock boy at Walmart. Um, graduates, does not get drafted, but he is a walk-on free agent on the practice squad, I think starting with Baltimore. But over the next five years, he plays for five teams. So he's a scrappy dude. Last year, he had a breakout season, had five sacks, um, which, interestingly, he's only the fifth player since 1982 uh, to be a Ivy League grad and record five or more stack, sacks in one There's season. There's a stat for everything. <laughs> they is. track everything. Anyway, so he just gets re-signed by the Jets. $1.75 million contract. What's he going to do with that money? He's going to invest 85 to 90% of it in stocks and real estate, as he's been doing pretty much throughout his career. Um, and then it occurred to him a couple of years ago when he was playing for Detroit, when he and a few players were driving around looking for real estate to buy, they're all talking about like how they didn't learn this stuff. No one taught them this stuff. And it would have saved them a lot of hassle, a lot of lost money if they had known this stuff coming out of college. So he thought, there should be a class for this, and I can be the one who teaches it. So now, this offseason, he's back at his college alma mater as the co-professor of URBS 140, in equity and empowerment, urban financial literacy, along with Dr. Brian Peterson, the director of MACU, which is Penn's Black Cultural Center. He's basically teaching what he calls Life 101. So he's starting with the basics, budgeting, living below your means, good debt versus bad debt, renting or buying, magic of compound interest. And he told ESPN, quote, you need to attack your financial health, your financial well-being, and get to work on creating a better future for yourself. So it's pretty cool that this guy who's now pretty good NFL football player spends his offseason teaching kids about money. He said the biggest financial lesson he's learned is that classic, don't keep up with the Joneses. He said, quote, if that's not something of value to you, then don't chase it. And that, Allison, is what's up. Thanks to LinkedIn for supporting Molly Full Answers. When it's time to make a hire for your small business, naturally you want to find the best person for the job. Odds are that person is on LinkedIn. I would argue that here at The Motley Fool, we're very good at hiring, and having the right person in the right role has been the main driver of The Motley Fool's success over the last 25 years, through good times and bad. I remember some of those less good times. Yeah, <laughs> I've only been here for the... Nah, I've been here for some small, not great times. Yeah. But you were here for the dark times. The dark times. We survived. <laughs> well, you did, because we hired great people like That's you true. and Rick. So LinkedIn Jobs makes it easy to get matched with quality candidates who make the most sense for your role. Matching lets you quickly get a group of the most relevant, qualified candidates. That way you can focus on spending time talking to the people you want to talk to and make a quality hire you're excited about. People come to LinkedIn every day to learn and advance their careers, so LinkedIn understands what they're interested and looking for, which means when you use LinkedIn Jobs to hire someone, your matches are based on so much more than a resume. Post a job at linkedin.com slash fool and get $50 off your first job post. That's linkedin.com slash fool. Terms and conditions apply. Well, Morgan Housel is back. I'm here. Thank you again for, for coming on me. the show. We appreciate you coming in and giving us your time and letting your parking meter expire and just <laughs> okay. going with it. We're talking my, my meters expire, but I told you I'm, I'm a risk taker, so we're going to cross our fingers and hope this works. See, I feel like I know you enough to know that you're not a risk taker. That's true. 
<laughs> so this is killing but was, you. What, weren't like, you like a like a skiing prodigy or something like that? I mean, I it's you a know, slight exaggeration, but I've, I've skied before. <laughs> yeah, didn't you like? Weren't you like homeschool? Like you skipped high school to ski? Didn't you? Or that's something true. Like yeah. That? yeah, yeah. Well, okay. that's on your parents. That's on that's, that was, <laughs> that's, that's that. me. <laughs> and look how you turned out. <laughs> Went to the school of. Gnarly, whatever people used to say in the nineties when they were skiing. Yeah, yeah. I <laughs> want my two dollars. Yeah, that's eighties. Okay, I, 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 you know what that's from, right? No, yeah, but I was trying to, I was trying to channel like, like bro, bro, not you, kind of bro talk from the nineties. Like, grunge. hey, yeah. yeah, we're gonna go like throw down a whatever with the <laughs> sweet pearl jam. No. <laughs> I was literally snowboarding in the 90s and I cannot pretend to talk like that apparently anymore. kids. Right? Oh, well, whatever. All right, so you are here today to help us talk about different kinds of smart. And I don't know, is it fair to say... I don't know. Should we start with this Jeff Bezos quote? Yeah, I don't want to do say it. like I don't know if this inspired you to write this story. Yes. Oh, then let's start with let's the inspiration. Start it. Yes. It's a little photo that Jeff Bezos took. That no, I'm kidding. That's not the inspiration <laughs> for the article you wrote. Um, oh, sorry. And, and Morgan writes over at thecollaborativefund.com. So if you want to uh, read more, he's an awesome writer, and I would say that even if you weren't here. So, <laughs> all right. The inspirational quote we have for you today comes from Jeff Bezos. The older I get, the more I realize how many kinds of smart there are. There are a lot of kinds of smart. There are a lot of kinds of stupid, too. So today we're going to talk about five different kinds of smart. You're like, yes, let's do this. All right, the first one is accepting that your field is no more important or influential to other people's decisions than dozens of other fields, pushing you to spend your time connecting the dots between your expertise and other disciplines. I think this is especially true in investing, where kind of the core of investing is not necessarily can you become a master of finance? Can you memorize all the formulas? Investing is just like the study of how people behave with money. And since this is a study about behavior, there's all these other fields out that have nothing to do with investing that are critically important to learning those fields that help you become a better investor. Mm-hmm. Psychology and sociology and history and all these things that you, you might think, like, why would, I, why would I study sociology to help me become a better investor? But, I mean, there's a lot of lessons in there that help you think about or help teach you how people think about risk, how people think about opportunity, how people run with the herd uh, and, and don't want to be left out of the herd. Those are all very relevant topics to investing. So I think I think if you take a more multidisciplinary approach to your learning, it's true in I think most fields, but I, I definitely think it's very meaningful in investing. It's to, a very to, lib- liberal arts degree approach I think that's right. to investing. <laughs> I think that's right. Yeah, and you'll see this a lot. A lot of the best investors, Warren Buffett, Howard Marks, Charlie Munger, is probably the most uh, common example. They, even when they're writing and speaking about investing, they're very often doing it through the lens of something completely unrelated, mm-hmm. because they're skill that's made them great investors is they understand how people make decisions around risk and opportunity. And that's what investing is. And a lot of those skills have nothing to do with finance per se. You even see that a lot just in Warren Buffett's writing. Like he's always using analogies and metaphors and often mongers are special hug related and but but you see that a lot in their writing, which is just a good good writing is telling stories. And there is some little I don't. Whenever I know, whenever I nail a metaphor or come up with a good connection to help me explain something, there's like a little spark of joy in my brain where I'm like, yes, you start connecting the dots. I connected some dots. This is going to help me understand this 
better because it's totally different, but it makes sense. It starts to make sense, yeah. It does. All right, next one. A barbell personality with confidence on one side and paranoia on the other, willing to make bold moves, but always within the context of making survival the top priority. And this is like the, the difference between getting rich and staying rich, like we were talking about earlier. It's to get rich, you need to be able to swing for the fences and take risk and do something different, kind of step away from the herd. But staying rich requires conservatism and a level of pessimism and a level of not wanting to take a risk so that you can keep what you've gained. And that like conflicting or barbell personality is rare. This is why you have a lot of particularly like traders who will make a huge fortune and then lose it all at some other time because they have the personality that will let them get rich, but not the personality that will let them stay rich. And the kind of, if you become a billionaire in investing or your businesses, those people are not the kind of, don't, by and large, don't have the personality that's going to let them say, okay, now that I've made a billion dollars, I'm going to put it all in treasury bonds. <laughs> if, they so had, if, if they had that mentality, they would yeah. not have become a billionaire in the first place. Right. And that's why there's so much turnover on the Forbes richest American list. The kind of personality that helps you get to the billionaire list is also the kind of per- personality that's going to push you off it very quickly. <laughs> <laughs> Number three. Understanding that Ken Burns is more popular than history textbooks because facts don't have any meaning unless people pay attention to them and people pay attention to and remember good stories. Yeah, I think it's it's obvious that uh, there are people in your workplace or that you know who have the right answers and have great ideas but can't articulate them very well. And because of that, people in the workplace and whatnot don't pay as much attention to them as people who may have a less... A, a, le- a less right answer, a less uh, an answer that's not as good as the others, but if they can articulate it very well and tell a great story about it, that's what people cling to. Right. And I think this is it's important for all jobs to realize that. I think something I realized a couple of years ago is basically every job, no matter what you do, is sales. Because even if you're not a salesman per se, you're trying to convince your coworkers and your clients and your customers and your boss, you're trying to convince them that your decision was right. And that requires a level of storytelling and just being, you know, just being clear and crisp about what you're saying that I think often goes um, unnoticed by people who think that because they have the common type of smarts of just high IQ, high SAT scores, that they can calculate the right answer. And because it's the right answer, people will pay attention to it. Whereas you have to be able to communicate that in a way that people find interesting and will cling to. I enjoy reading about history. So I've read about the Civil War. We live in Virginia, so you can go to all kinds of Civil War sites. But I think 90% of what I remember about the Civil War is from the Ken Burns series. It's so good. <laughs> it's so, it's so good. good. It's so good, yeah. but it's so true. It's just, it just kind of burns it into your brain. Yeah. No pun intended. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, well, here at The Motley Fool, since I'm also my other job here is doing PR and often helping train fools to do interviews and stuff like that. And so I have like a... a series that I put people through. And most of that series is about how to be a compelling person on TV or on camera or upfront speaking. Just tell stories. Yeah. Like just tell a story, one story after another. And Tom and David Gardner, founders of Motley Fool, are, they're great they're public masters. speakers. Yep. And if you listen to them, all they do is tell, the, tell the same 50 stories over and over again. And they're great stories. And I, one time I talked to David and David is like, it would be fun. David Gardner, he's like, this is so David. He's like, it would be fun if sometime I just went to, um, had every one of my stories, because he keeps them secure somewhere. If I numbered every one of them, and then I just went and spoke publicly and I told them to just pick three numbers. And then I would tell whatever those random <laughs> stories were. And he's like, and it would probably make a pretty good speech. It would probably it would roll, probably work. Roll, roll the dice. Which one is it? Today? Right. Well, I, actually, I did this the other day. David loves these little randomized things. So he'll randomize his to-do list. 
And so I enumerated my to-do list, rolled a dice to figure out which thing on my list yeah. I should do. A thing I got from David. Yeah, and he ran. And he, he's like, I should randomize a speech one day. But it's true. And people walk away from those. You, often when you have people who tell these moving stories, stories help because they evoke emotions. They make you emotional. And, and as much as we like to tell ourselves we make decisions based on logic, we really make decisions based on emotion and then spend, spend our time trying to back it up with logic. Yeah. But, I mean, I'm a firm believer that storytelling is one of the most important things you can do. And it, it takes, like, it's easier to create a PowerPoint slide that's got four bullet points, right? It's easier to be like, this is what I want you to know, boom, boom, boom. But people will walk people away not, not remembering. That. They, yeah. won't, they won't feel moved. The they won't feel, yeah. So I'm a, I'm a firm believer in the power of storytelling. All right, next way you can be smart. Humility, not in the idea that you could be wrong, but given how little of the world you've experienced, you are likely wrong, especially in knowing how other people think and make decisions. Yeah, it's just this idea that people people's view of the world is heavily influenced and guided by their own unique personal past. The generation that they're born into, the country that they were raised in, just the you know, where they went to school, a lot of these things have are completely outside of your control and are completely different from person to person. And what I've experienced as someone my age in the United States, as an investor, let's say, completely different than someone who grew up in Germany in the 1940s. Like, do you think we're going to have the same view about how the stock market works or how the economy works? It's completely different. One of the reasons, one of the areas we saw this in was the last decade when gold as an investment became very popular. As a central bank was printing a lot of money after the financial crisis, the generation it was most popular with by far were the baby boomers. Hmm. And I think a lot of the reason that was is because baby boomers came of age in the 70s and 80s when inflation was double digits. Whereas my generation has never experienced significant inflation ever. So we were looking at the baby boomers panicking about this coming inflation. And I think my generation couldn't really understand why they were so worried. But if you are a baby boomer who remembers gas lines and remembers 15% mm -hmm. inflation, you just had a different life experience that other generations who didn't experience that couldn't really understand. And I think that, that idea, that example, like applies to millions of different things. Mm -hmm. Like everyone's definition of risk is just rooted in what they've experienced. And so if you can realize that your personal experiences is just a tiny fraction of what else has happened, what other people have experienced, and what is going to influence the decisions of other people. I think that's a really important thing to do, but it's incredibly hard to do. Yeah, it is, because it's so hard. Like, in my experience, I've never... like you can't, you can't imagine anything outside of your own experience unless you're open to listening to other people and what they've gone through. Right. So um, it can be easy to dismiss other people's experiences. The fifth and final way that people can be smart is convincing yourself and others to forego instant gratification, often through strategic distraction. Yeah, it's I mean, especially in investing, but a lot of things. You know, if you're trying to if your competitive advantage, if you think your competitive advantage is I'm smarter than everyone else, particularly in investing, the answer is almost always no you're not. <laughs> especially the the combined average intelligence of millions yeah. of other people, they're always going to be smarter than you. So then it's like what is your competitive advantage? And I truly think that the only one that individual investors can practice in real time as a competitive advantage is to have a longer time horizon than other people. It's not easy. It's still incredibly difficult. But I think if you can use patience as, you know, as your competitive advantage uh, and, you know, like I said in the article, have ways to distract yourself if you're not looking at your portfolio, mm -hmm. uh, just setting up your, your, your situation as, as an investor to keep yourself distracted from uh, being tempted to make short-term decisions. I think that's one of the only ways that people can have an advantage over the average investor. And if you want to call that smarts, then that's what it is. 
Right. And I was looking at that. My first thought was not investing as much as saving, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Not spending as much because you got to get something in your account before you can worry about investing it. Um, and you, in your article, you brought up the classic marshmallow test, yep. which we've all heard of, but you used the example of how the kids would, f- would come up with all kinds of ways to distract themselves from the marshmallows so they wouldn't eat it. Yeah, so the kids in the marshmallow, the famous marshmallow test were the kids who could, uh, who, who could delay their gratification uh, and, and, and not eat the marshmallow, you know, ended up doing better in life than the kids who just took it right away. And the kids who didn't eat the, take the marshmallow right away, it wasn't that they sat there staring at the marshmallow and exercised self-control. They played with their shoelaces and hid under the table. They were distracting themselves. Mm-hmm. And it's very difficult if you're a child or an adult staring at the marshmallow, staring at your brokerage account, following the market all day, and assuming that you're going to stare, stare at it and still exercise self-control. It's very, very difficult to do. Uh, much easier to just not buy the cookies and not have them on your counter than it is to stare at the cookies and assume you're not going to take them. Mm-hmm. So get a hobby to distract get you. A hobby. <laughs> get a hobby. Get a good hobby. Go hang out. Go for a walk. Play, play with your family. Ah, all right, Morgan, do you have any closing thoughts for our listeners about how to be smart? Just be smarter. Just do I it. <laughs> I know, that's a tough question. I'm just looking for you to put just a bow don't, on this. Just don't be so stupid. Morgan, thanks so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me. Uh, and for those of you who want more of Morgan, and who doesn't want more of Morgan, <laughs> you can head to thecollaborativefund.com slash blog. Uh, that's where Morgan writes. You can also follow him on Twitter. He, he writes things on Twitter. I tweet. You tweet. You tweet. Morgan, thanks again. Thanks. Well, that's the show. It's edited cleverly by Rick Engdahl. Our email is answers at fool.com. Drop us a line. Ask us a question. There's always a mailbag episode around the corner. For Robert Brokamp, I'm Allison Southwick. Stay foolish, everybody. Stay foolish, everybody.